The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. The scripture reading today is from Deuteronomy 34, verses 1 through 12. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan, all Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the Negev and the plain, that is, the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees, as far as Zoar. And the Lord said to him, This is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor, but no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. And the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses." whom the Lord knew face to face, none like him for all the signs and all the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Thank you, Charlene, for reading the passage of Scripture for us this morning. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Christ Prayers. My name is Paul Lim. I've been serving here since 2016 as a scholar in residence here and also uh, teaching history of Christianity at Vanderbilt University. So it's a great, great delight to be here with you, to welcome you on July 4th. It's a very important day in our calendar. Um, I don't know about you, but a lot of us feel distracted even as we come into the house of worship. Uh, in some ways, I do as well. So I think it is important for us to remember that the purpose of Christian worship is to decenter us from ourselves and to recenter us in Jesus. And we, need, we need to remember the, the whole purpose of worship is to really decenter us from all of our distractions and to really recenter us and refocus us on Christ. So with that in mind, if it is okay, let's pray together as we look at God's word. Gracious God and glorious Lord, we come together to worship you amid so many distracting thoughts and events and complications. Also, Lord, it is great to see so many faces that are here, anew and some ones we haven't seen for a while, those who have had procedures done or hospitalized and haven't been here for a long time and are here with us. Lord, we are also mindful of the fact that there are people who have moved on from this world among us. God, as we come together in this moment of July 4th, 2021, 
Help us to recognize the solemnity with which we enter into this occasion, as well as the sense of jubilation and deep gratitude for the sacrifices of those who have gone before us. Lord, help us to know that as we turn our eyes upon Jesus, all the things of this world will grow strangely dim. And may that happen to us as we look to the Spirit of God to guide us and to teach us and to encourage us, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So freedom, as we all know, on this day of July 4th, uh, comes at a cost. Death were laid down at the bottom of the Tower of Life. We all know that both here in our country and much, much beyond past as well as present and future. As we're finishing up this series on the life of Moses, uh, we are talking today about the death of Moses and the significance that that story has not only for the people of Israel back then, but also for the people of God worshiping here today. With all human life, there comes the moment of death. With the only two exceptions are Enoch in Genesis chapter 4 and Elijah in 2 Kings 2. All the rest of us have come and have died and will die. That means even with the life of the most spectacularly faithful servant of God in many ways, Moses, he, his life, has come to an end. And the recording of that narrative is found in the text that we have read for us. Whether it was in the life of George Washington or Abraham Lincoln or Mother Teresa or Nelson Mandela or Martin Luther King Jr., George H.W. Bush, these leaders have all died. Moses was a leader par excellence in the history of Israel, surpassing, I think in my opinion, even that of King David or Solomon. Uh, he was indeed the foundational figure in the giving of the law and the establishment of the people of Israel as those who entered into the promised land to fulfill the promise that God had made to the patriarchs and matriarchs. We read about the death of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 34, and we will talk about the following three points. I realize today's the 4th of July, there are picnics and fireworks, so I'll get right to the points. Three points of today's sermon are as follows. First point is fragility of human leadership. Fragility of human leadership. Second point will be the fidelity of divine promise. Third point will be finality of Christ the prophet. So we're going to th talk about these three words, fragility, fidelity, and finality. I realize it must seem slightly odd that the first point of this sermon has to do with the fragility of human leadership rather than extol the accomplishments of Moses, the greatest leader of all, all of Israel, arguably. And we will do enough of extolling of the good works that Moses has done, but if we focus on that and if the takeaway for you is to think about what an awesome leader Moses was, I think we're missing the point of this sermon and indeed of worship itself. But I don't know about you, but I really like this guy, Moses. I really enjoy studying through the life of Moses, speaking on it as well even. Moses lived in exile, and Moses sought to do right by God and by neighbor, initially in his own strength and according to his own plans, and that led him to be an abject failure, in fact, a murderer and a fugitive. Yet he learned the hard lessons of humility and leadership training when he thought his life was pretty much all over as he has spent 40 years in the wilderness tending flock, not of his own, but of his father-in-law Jethro, and in the Midian desert. So he was away from home, away from a lot of the familiar surroundings, and indeed his life was, in some ways, really replete with sorrow and sadness. 
That's precisely when the Lord shows up in a big way, calls him out from the burning bush. And Moses' leadership experience of taking the captives free from the land of bondage and cruel slavery was in many ways truly spectacular, as you recall. Moses' display of God's power, God's faithfulness, and God's mercies led the Israelites to be fed by manna from heaven, water from the rock, parting of the Red Sea, and his face shining in such a radioactive way that people are truly scared, thereby necessitating Moses to be veiled. And these are some of the real spectacular details of leadership experience that Moses got to experience in his life. In fact, it is an important point to remember the entirety of the Old Testament, Hebrew Bible, and Judaism itself can be summed up as the law of Moses. Put it differently, if Jesus was the in incomparable represented figure in the New Testament, indeed all of the Bible, the counterpart to Jesus and the predecessor to the Messiah in terms of prophetic leadership was none other than Moses. In fact, this is what the Gospel of John has to say about that. In John 1, 17 and 18, it says, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. So law came through Moses, and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And we tend to think that, oh, so Moses is nobody and Jesus is everybody. Well, that's partly true, but the point being that if you think about the Old Testament, if you think about ancient Israelites' religion, though prototypical figure, is none other than Moses. And it continues to say that the, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known in John 1.18. Law through Moses, and here is an interesting point. Although it says that no one has ever seen God, the only one who could actually say that they saw God in the closest and the most proximate way was, again, none other than Moses himself. Yet in today's text, we read of the death of Moses. Here I cannot help but get a little bit misty-eyed. Moses, as a leader, put up with the, pardon the crudity, but all the nonsense of the people that he was asked to lead as a chosen leader of Israel during the time of the Jewish equivalent of the 4th of July, Juneteenth, or the Emancipation Proclamation. Let's take a look at today's text, verses 1 through 4 in particular. Moses climbs Mount Nebo from the plains of Moab to the top of Pisgah, and the Lord showed him the spectacular landscape of the promised land, from Gilead to Dan, all of Naphtali, the territory of Ephraim and Manasseh, and the land of Judah, as far as the Mediterranean Sea, the Negev, and the whole region from the Valley of Jericho, the city of Palms, as far as Zoar. So these words are just kind of our, you know, the linguistic effort to capture the beautiful and spectacular and breathtaking scenery that Moses was able to kind of soak in as a what? As a substitute for getting into the actual promised land. In other words, Moses was disqualified from entering the promised land. And we'll have more to say about that, but I think it's important for us to remember, and we have to ask the question as to why was Moses disqualified from entering the promised land? And here, I think, we'll focus not only on the disqualification itself, but disobedience itself, but also what that tells us about the attributes of God, who God is and whose we are as we look at the, the characters of God. 
So then, then as you're, I mean, imagine you're the most beautiful scenery you have ever encountered, right? I mean, it could be like beautiful sunset, you know, in the, in the Atlantic Ocean or the Pacific Ocean or beautiful view from one of the national parks or, you know, let's say you climb up the Mount, you know, Hawaii or Mount Kilimanjaro in Kenya and you're looking at the beautiful vista of this beautiful creation. And, and Moses is seeing some, something like that, but much more than that because this is the promised land that, that you were actually asked and tasked to lead the people of God. And you are somehow disqualified, but you're able to observe it from afar. And this is what God says. This is the land I had promised on oath to Abraham. And that's a very important word, covenant or oath. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when I said, I will give it to your descendants. And what a fabulous scene it is. But guess what the Lord said after that? He said, I have let you see it with your own eyes, but you will not cross over into it. So what, for real? I mean, what's going on? Moses, the unsurpassable political and religious leader among the chosen people of God, he does not get to go into the land for which he had let the grumbling people of God right up to the precipice of entering. Why is that? I mean, put it this way, 40 years of faithful service, 40 years, that's 10 terms as a president, right? I mean, like, so think of two terms, that's pretty long, but like, you know, it's a 10-term presidency or leadership. And because of one act of disobedience, Moses does not get in. And as we have said earlier in our uh, time of confession together, led by Eric, that it is important to recognize this very, very important point that even though the embodiment of the law in many ways, Moses himself, who gave the people of God the law itself, he himself could not be qualified through the observance of the law. That's a very important point. So, in fact, then, all of salvation, whether through, you know, from Adam and Eve all the way to all of us here, salvation is by grace alone, by chesed alone, by God's covenantal faithfulness to the people of God. Forty years of faithful service, one act of disobedience meant disqualification. Robert Alter is a professor at the University of California at Berkeley. Um, he's arguably one of the most uh, well-known Jewish uh, scholars of the Hebrew Bible and Judaism itself. And he says something quite memorable about this whole disqualification of Moses and what that tells us about the, people, uh, of the, the God of Israel. He said that Judaism, and by extension for us, uh, Christianity, is quite possibly the only world religion that has absolutely zero qualms about displaying the failures and faux pas and foibles of its own leaders and great persons in the Bible because the religion of Israel and of Christianity was not so much about how great the leaders were, how great the people were. No, it's not that, but rather how great and gracious and glorious uh, the covenant Lord that Yahweh was and remains because this God did not and, and did and does continue to show up and show out to be the one who calls and uses fragile people in establishing a great nation from out of rejects, losers, and rebels. That's an important point to remember. And that's why I think if you look at the genealogy of Jesus or if you look at the stories of the Old Testament, you know, it doesn't shy away from telling us about the failures and fable, I mean, for, you know, foibles of Sarah and Abraham and David and, and all of these great characters of God are also besmirched by their own kind of failures and setbacks and great acts of rebellion in many ways and disobedience. So the point is this, the fragility of human leadership, including that of Moses, the very point that in the narrative about the death of Moses, it does not just elevate Moses unduly. It clearly speaks of the fact that due to Moses' own failings, he does not enter into it. 
And you know what the one failure was? Some of you know, and this is a very, uh, in, in some ways, kind of minor detail, but at the same time, it is a very crucial detail that we uh, do well to remember. So the story, the incident that, that becomes the tripping uh, cause or, you know, the cause for dis disqualification for Moses is recorded for us in Numbers chapter 20. The people of, had, uh, people of Israel had been wandering for nearly 40 years in the desert, and they reached the waters of this area called Meribah Kadesh. So it's a, it's a holy one, uh, uh, kind of quarreling uh, to, uh, to uh, uh, translate it directly. Since there was no water, the community turned against the political leadership of Aaron and Moses. They said stuff like, only we had died with our brothers and sisters who fell dead before coming into this God-forsaken place. Why did you bring us into the wilderness that we and our livestock should die here? Because if we actually lived and stayed in Egypt, we will have food, we'll have grain and figs, we'll have grapevines and pomegranates, and there is no water even here. So out of desperation, Moses and Aaron, they went in, they go into the tent of meeting to seek the face of the Lord. And, and they were seeking divine wisdom and deliverance. And the Lord spoke and said that they should gather the assembly of the people. And then Moses was supposed to speak to the rock and the water will gush forth. Now, if you remember the life of Moses and the ministry of Moses, Moses does something to the rock. Prior to that particular incident, he was asked to strike the rock once and the water came out. Right? So what does Moses do in this particular incident recorded in Numbers chapter 20? He was asked, remember, to speak to the rock. Right? Guess what he does? Does he speak to the rock or does he strike the rock? He strikes the rock how many times? Twice. Now guess what? That becomes the cause of dis disqualification. You may be saying, what, that's it? That's it. That's it. Now, we may think that's no big deal. That's like, well, that's not, why is that such a big deal? Let me tell you why that is a big deal. But also I want to offer a contemporary kind of analogy that may get us thinking together. Because I realize that when we talk about Moses, some people really are into Moses, but then we need to kind of bring it into today's context for you to get the significance of some of the stories that we're telling here. So uh, if you're following, if you're uh, like me, a sports fan, or even if you're not, uh, you've been kind of following the story of this fantastic sprinter. Uh, Shikari Richardson, right? She blew by everybody in the 100-meter dash, and she qualified to, be, to represent our country in the Tokyo Olympics, which is happening just in a matter of a couple of weeks down the road. And guess what? She's disqualified, was so, so we hear. I mean, I was shocked. Now, a couple of things are there, and, and, and so she, uh, she smoked marijuana in Oregon, so I don't, I, I realize that in certain parts of the country, smoking marijuana is legal, right? So I think it's legal in, uh, I know I'm being recorded, so I better be careful. So I know it's illegal in Oregon. I know it's legal in California. It's illegal in Tennessee, right? There's certain, but so she smoked in, 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 in Oregon, but because of the regulations as, as, a, uh, um, as an athlete, uh, you know, the, 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 what is it? U.S. Olympic Committee basically said, you are actually not qualified to run because even though you might have smoked it in Oregon, which is legal, but you as an athlete, you, you're representing something bigger than yourself. You're held to a higher standard. Her biological mother had just passed and she learned it from a reporter. And so as a coping mechanism, she did it. And yes, she's disqualified. And the nation, I mean, a lot of people are divided about this, right? You know, President Biden says something about the rules are rules, but at the same time, Seth Rogen said, you know, if smoking weed makes you faster, then I'm gonna be as fast as Flo Joe. And you know, so it's, people are all over the place. But then the important point is very this, and I think you will get it, you'll get the, the importance of why I'm telling you the story about Shikari Richardson, who, by the way, I, I, I would love if she could run. I mean, I think, but 
here's the point. The point is that many of us are upset about the fact that Shakari Richardson is disqualified. In the same way, I think, so Moses' disqualification in some way, the fact that you're like, oh, wait a minute, it doesn't seem fair, is completely understandable. But here's a very important caveat. Very important caveat is this. You think, I think in many ways, God's job is to forgive us. It's God's job to forgive, and we can go on continuing in our sinful ways. Or like, not every day, but not every hour, but like every other day I may make a mistake, but it's God's job, full-time job of God is to forgive me, to restore me into fellowship, because if I ask, so it is very, very important for us to remember this, that in the way that we take lightly the law of God, in the same way that we don't really understand the depth of God's grace, that's something that I'm coming to realize more and more. I realize in many ways, I may not regard the law of God as no big deal. Like, why is that such a big deal? No, no. It is important, especially for the Christian community, because there is somebody else who, in your place, took your place and fulfilled it. And so when we think about Moses and his dis disqualification, we get rightly upset and say, well, that's, is that really that big a deal? Because he, after all, provided water, didn't he? And the Lord said very, very clearly, he says, you know what? He says, I am because you did not trust in Numbers 20, verse 12, because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. It does sound harsh, but it is precisely because we don't really take seriously God's holiness and the attribute of God as the one who is entirely trustworthy. And his words are to be taken with utmost seriousness and I say that as one who's implicated, proclaiming to those who are also implicated in the same way. To the extent that we regard Moses not being allowed to enter the promised land as harsh, it clearly shows our failure to take God's holiness seriously. In the way that you and I think, wait a minute, with all the suffering that Moses endured for the sake of the call and for the sake of these grumblers, he does not get into the promised land but only gets to watch it from afar? Yes, that shows that even among the best of the leaders, we all have clay feet, and we are all totally depraved, even the best of us. Even Moses couldn't enter the promised land by his performance. And that's an important point to remember. If entering into the, and somebody asked me after the service, in the first service, uh, he asked me, does that mean that Moses did not get to heaven? I said, no, no, no. Salvation is by, by grace only, but I think for, this is a very important symbolism and teaching moment for all of Israel, as well as all the readers of the story of this Deuteronomy text, that our entrance into that promised land, spiritually speaking and, 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 and figuratively speaking, is not by performance of your own, but by God's performance through the one who was to come about whom we'll hear in just a few minutes. That leads me to the second point, that is the fidelity of divine promise. So on the one hand, we talked about the fragility of human leadership. Moses was a fantastic, great leader, but whose one act of slippage disqualified him from entering into this promised land. It does seem a little harsh, let's be honest, but at the same time, in the same way that we kind of lessen the importance of the severity and the seriousness with which God has given the law, we need to take that seriously because Martin Luther said that unless we understand the law and the, the demands of the law, we really understand the, the difficulty of impo the impossibility of fulfilling it. If we don't get that, then we really don't get the gospel. Because God does not grade on a curve. 
We think that God grades on a curve. Like, okay, God has to have some people with A grade and B grade and C grade, and, and God's going to do it God's way. No, God's way is actually it is all or nothing, perfection or none at all. And that leads me to the second point of fidelity of divine promise. What I find incredibly interesting about the way that death of Moses is portrayed here in Deuteronomy 34 is this. It unequivocally speaks of the greatness of Moses, and about which we'll just say in a couple of minutes. While he was 120 years old, watch this, his eyes were not weak, and his strength was not uh, uh, abated. In verse 10, it says, Since then no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all the signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do in Egypt, and no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. So the writer of Deuteronomy, so this is, we know that this was written, that part was at least written after the death of Moses, because it says, since then, since the death of Moses, so death, Moses could not have written as it was since my death, you know. It's so the, the people who had come after Moses are saying, you know what, as we look back on the story of Moses and what Moses was able to accomplish, we see that no one comes even close to what Moses has done, right? So that's a very, very important word. So in other words, ain't nobody better, ain't nobody better or bigger than Big Mo, right? Or he was the OG Mamba, right? And, and as a prophet and as a servant of the Lord, like he was the OG guy, like he is it, right? At the same time, it unapologetically speaks to the fact that Moses, after all that he had done, was told, you will never cross over into the promised land, and that he was actually buried in Moab, like all the rest of us. We are, Moses does get buried into the earth. Unlike Elijah, who does not experience the finality of human frailty in death, Moses does die. And the fact that no one knows where his grave is pre pre prevents him from being exalted unduly as a figure of veneration worthy of some kind of pilgrimage. So on the one hand, it speaks of uh, the great things that Moses had done, and simultaneously, it speaks of the grievous error that Moses had committed that led to his own demise of not entering the promised land. Although this text here does not explicitly tell us why, but we have already looked at why, but if you had read this book from the beginning, Deuteronomy chapter 1 all the way to 34, the readers knew exactly why. And this is my second point. Amid all the cacophony of human failures, rebellions, and disobedience, we see the fidelity of divine promise. Look with me in verse 9. It says, Now Joshua, son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid his hands on him. So the Israelites listened to Joshua and did what the Lord had commanded Moses. What does that mean? Here's a very crucial point, I think. The sanctity of our ministry, the sanctity, the holiness of our ministry does not actually depend on the impeccability of human instruments who carry out the work of divine service of preaching, governing, baptizing, and offering the Eucharist, right? Offering the Lord's Supper. Meaning this, if what is required of the priest or the pastor is our own perfection, then I, of all people, should not be standing here at all. I will never, I, I will be never qualified enough to stand here. So, on the one hand, you got the human frailty, 
frailty of human leadership, but there's also this other fact of fidelity of God's promise. God has promised that I will do my work, so Moses had failed, and that's why this verse is very, very important to me, and I think for all, a lot, all of us too. Joshua gets to be picked by Moses through, I mean, picked by God through Moses, and Moses puts his hand on Joshua. Moses, who himself is disqualified, is qualifying Joshua for the unique task of leading the people of God into the promised land. And I think it's really important for us to recognize that. The fidelity of God's promise is shown in the fact that in the midst of Moses' own rebellion or act of disobedience, God chose Joshua. And here's an interesting thing. Moses anointed him for the task per God's own command. And notice what it says. So the Israelites listened to him, to Joshua, and did what the Lord commanded Moses. So the Lord commands Moses to do it. Moses fails. Moses anoints Joshua, and then the work gets done. So what does that mean? In the middle of, indeed, in spite of human infidelity and unfaithfulness, the Lord continues to demonstrate his own fidelity to his own promise made to Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob, and by continuing to use human instruments to deliver us from ourselves. So Moses does not enter the promised land even though he really desperately wants to enter it. It's clear because if you read in, in Deuteronomy chapter 3, it says, at that time I pleaded, I meaning Moses, I pleaded with the Lord. Let me please go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan that, and that fine, fine hill country in Lebanon. And the Lord then said, what? That is enough. Do not speak to me about this anymore. And the Lord took him to the mount, top of Pisgah and showed him. So in the book of Deuteronomy, it speaks of it twice, in chapter 3 and chapter 34, almost as a two important bookends of the entire story of second giving of the law, was that in the middle of the human failure of Moses, there is a continuing fidelity of God's promise that's going to be fulfilled. Even though this great leader had fallen once, just once, mind you, but that was enough to disqualify him, and yet the project of God and the promise of God was not completely in shambles. God says, my work will continue on. So Moses failed the ultimate test, and yet the Lord's work of deliverance and delivery into the promised land did not fail. Moses laid down, laid his own hands on Joshua, indicating with all human leadership there will always be the elements of incompleteness. And yet the Lord continues his work through our defects. I don't know about you, so I'm, I'm, I'm in my mid, middle 50s now, and, and as I think about, um, you know, that, and, and, you know, a lot of people, I think people of my generation or a few years younger, I think a lot of us are looking up to our political leaders a lot, right? You know what I mean? Like, and, and then I think there is set kind of the kind of disappointment, you know, and you can pick your Republican errors and Democrat errors and like, you know, it's okay. Like, none, nobody could say, I am imperfect, I mean, I am perfect, no. So it seems to me that with those kind of a setbacks of the presidential narratives, many of us began to kind of, that there was an erosion of trust in authority, right? I think a lot of us are implicitly suspicious of authority because in many ways, these leaders have disappointed us. And yet at the same time, we have to ask this question of ourselves. In whom do we really put our ultimate trust? Who do I really trust in my life? Because the Lord said to Moses, because you did not trust me to really do what I say and speak to the rock, but instead you smote it twice, that is your cause for disqualification. So in the, in the midst of this whole um, frailty of human leadership, as well as the fidelity of divine promise, we have to ask ourselves this question. I have to ask myself this question. What do I really trust about who God is? 
what I really want out of this whole transaction or transformation called Christianity, what is God guaranteeing me today? As you enter into the relationship with God through the finished work of Moses and Jesus, and what do we really trust? What is God guaranteeing me? Is God guaranteeing some kind of prosperity and prestige and pomp and power? I don't think that is the case. I think what God promises is not prestige, not pomp, not, pros you know, not prosperity and power, but what God promises is another P word, is presence. God says, I am with you. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. And God is asking us every time, is that enough? Am I enough for you? And I don't know about you, but I find myself asking and wanting more than that. It's almost as if I'm telling God, God, you're not enough. I need these extra benefits of being in your, being good with you. I need the, the material goods. I need the, the reputation. I need the, the prosperity. I need the good, whatever. I mean, I want these other things, God. It is basically saying to the Lord that I'm going to forget the giver for the gifts that you're going to give me. And that's exactly what happened to many of the people of Israel. Indeed, all of human history is replete with stories of that failure and saying no to God because we believe that God is insufficient and not good enough for us. That leads me to the third and the final point, finality of Christ the greater prophet. Finality of Christ the prophet. We have noted that the passage about the death of Moses ends by extolling the fantastic achievements of Moses the prophet. Prophets like Moses uh, in Deuteronomy, uh, Moses spoke about it and said, you know what, after my death, God will, you know, kind of establish for you and, and kind of raise up for you a prophet like me. Deuteronomy 18.15. It is important to note that the words of Deuteronomy 34.12 are written after the death of Moses, and in, and in retrospect, as I mentioned earlier, not a single prophet could contend to be equal to Moses in terms of the scope and magnitude of the power of the, good, the God of Israel. In, 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 in and through Moses, what God did was to really demonstrate what an awesome God that God is over and against all the deities and idols of Egypt and many other nations in the neighborhoods. In that regard, among the Israelites, anticipation could only grow as to who will, be, who will be that person because as they were writing, you know, finishing out that part of Deuteronomy, they were saying, okay, we're waiting for the greater prophet like Moses to show up, and they're waiting and waiting and waiting. And it is very important for us to remember this, that it is clear that the early Christian community, early church, interpreted the significance of Jesus' life and work through the events of the Old Testament. Meaning this, that when they had their Bible is our Old Testament. They didn't have the New Testament written yet. There's being written, it's being recorded and recollected and so on and so forth. But so they're looking at, they're interpreting the significance of who Jesus is and what he did through the stories that are written in their Bible, the Old Testament, what we call. What is therefore truly fascinating is how Peter, in one of the earliest recorded Christian sermons, saw the connection between Moses and Jesus. And he said this among the fellow Israelites in Acts chapter 3. This is what he said. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that the Messiah would suffer. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that the times of refreshing may come from the Lord. And then he says, heaven must receive Jesus until the time comes for God to restore everything, as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. 
Notice this in verse 22. For Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Why am I reading this text? This is an exact quotation from Deuteronomy 18.15, meaning that in the mindset of Peter and in the mindset of Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, they're thinking, how do we interpret the importance of Jesus? We need to see it in light of what Moses said about the prophet that is to come that is going to be the greater prophet than Moses himself. And for Peter, it says, aha, as we have witnessed the ministry and most importantly, his death and resurrection, it is a full it's a 100% positive proof that God has invested God's own authority on Jesus, the suffering servant. In other words, one of the key Christological themes that emerges in early Christianity was that Jesus was the Messiah and that a key component of the Messianic office was that he was the prophet coming after and fulfilling the prophecy of Moses. Interestingly, several New Testament passages went on further to develop the idea that Jesus was the fulfillment of the law of Moses, and therefore he was greater than Moses himself. John 5, 39 and 46, we find Jesus saying, you study the scriptures so diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. And he says, if you believe me, you would believe, if you believe Moses, you would believe me because Moses wrote about me. Let's be honest, Jesus had the audacity and the authority to speak of his own identity as being the one Moses wrote about. These words must have stung the ears of a Jewish audience at first as highly offensive, if not delusional. I mean, if you're in the first century context, if somebody says, yeah, Moses wrote about me, and I, I'm thinking like, I know your mom and dad, I know where you came from, you're not well-educated, you don't come from a powerful family, your zip code is wrong. How do I, I mean, why are you the one that Moses wrote about? So who, who does he think he's to babble like that? There are, I mean, these are, I must confess, the very thoughts I would have had, had if I'd been in the first century. So I think it, it really requires that faith, and faith is a gift of God. It's not by natural reason or innate abilities. In Hebrews chapter 3, we have a very explicit comparison between Moses' ministry and that of Jesus. The writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all of God's house. And it says, Jesus had been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. So what the writer is saying is that God is a builder of everything, and Jesus is builder of this whole thing. Moses was faithful as a servant in all of God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the son over God's house. So among other things, what the writer of Hebrews is doing is this. He's saying, okay, let me give you a very explicit comparison between Moses and Jesus. And what he does is to talk about the difference in ontology or essence. Moses was a servant of God. Jesus was son of God. Moses was human, full stop. Jesus was fully human and fully divine. Therefore, Jesus is superior to that of Moses. In John 1.17, as we had already mentioned, the law came through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Even though with Jesus there was a sense of finality, and fulfillment of the prophetic yearnings and anticipations. So I think it is important to remember that. Jesus, the suffering servant, the prophet whose words were rejected by many, and the one whose kingdom was not of this world, 
I think we need to remember this as we celebrate, eat a good meal and watch a great display of fireworks this afternoon and this evening and so on and so forth. Let me finish uh, somewhat unusually now. So uh, uh, Nate will come up and he will uh, play a song for us as a way to kind of help us to kind of refocus and reflect on the message that we heard and also about the, the communion that we're about to enter into. Um, we're going to uh, listen to a song by one of the great living theologians of our time, Michael Card. It's a song uh, uh, called uh, The Word is So Near. And uh, in Romans chapter 10, verses 5 through 9, what Paul, so we heard from Peter, now we hear from Paul. What Paul does in Romans chapter 10 is to really explicitly compare and contrast what Moses had written about the presence of the Word and what, Mo, what Paul does is to link that, the idea, the presence of the Word to Jesus, God incarnate himself. So in Romans chapter 10, 5 through 9, it says, Moses writes about the righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So what Paul has done here in this passage of Romans 10, 5 through 9 is to really quote from the text in Deuteronomy to talk about the fact that God is ever near us and with us in the Word of God. And what Paul does is to make the linkage between the Word written in Deuteronomy with the person of Jesus Christ. So Michael Carr writes these words, um, and we're going to hear it sung. It goes like this. The word is so near to your heart and your tongue with the one you confess and acknowledge the Son, with the other believed and are justified and find life in knowing it was for you he died. No, it's not up in heaven where your thoughts could not reach, nor beyond the ocean on some distant beach. No, the word is so near in the innermost part. It is alive on your lips. It abides in your heart. The word is so near to your heart and your tongue with the one you confess and acknowledge the Son, with the other believe and are justified, and in knowing it was for you and me, he died. Let's pray. Gracious God and glorious Lord, we have just heard about the death of Moses, a great leader and a follower of your law. And yet with this disqualification, we are somewhat surprised, if not scandalized, but at the same time, we need to recognize the severity and the seriousness of the law itself. That disqualification comes with our one act of disobedience, just as the case of Adam and Eve, so is the case of Moses. And yet we remember the finality of Christ the prophet, whose lifelong act of obedience to you qualified all of us to be recipients of this wonderful meal of reconciliation and communion. As we come to you now, may you accomplish your work of continuing sealing of your covenant through the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. In your name, amen.